Last week, uh, I did bring a, a special message from Acts chapter 2 in uh, honor of our um, eight-year anniversary celebration. And so uh, we're going to pick up today where we last left off in the book of Matthew, where we were two weeks ago. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Uh, we are going to be in chapter 9 uh, this morning. Matthew uh, chapter 9. And today we're going to try and cover, uh, or we will cover, the first half of the chapter. Uh, we're going to go up to verse 17. Just shy of half the chapter. Uh, but just kind of go through and, and highlight some things. It's more of a, well, today will be more of a running commentary. We'll just make a lot of different points and, and make some uh, uh, observations through the text. Uh, last time we were in Matthew, uh, I entitled our, the message, Interactions with Jesus, with Jesus, as different people were interacting and, and learning different things. Uh, today we're going to look at interactions with the scribes and Pharisees, and as uh, the people that Jesus is interacting with in these first 17 verses is the scribes and Pharisees. And so uh, this is kind of the, f- the first interactions that he's starting to have with these people. Uh, you are familiar with them, I'm sure. Later on, he's going to have some really harsh words towards them uh, as we continue our way through Matthew. But here we have just some interactions with the scribes and Pharisees. We're going to go ahead and uh, read. We'll stand uh, in honor of God's word as we uh, read Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're gonna, uh, we'll get through verse 17, but for starting off, we'll just read verses 1 through 8. Okay? Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 says, So he got into a boat referring to Jesus, uh, crossed over and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Verse 8, now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. I just enjoyed singing praise and worship to you, uh, just encouraged by it and through it. And I pray that you would continue to minister to our hearts uh, as we spend time in your word. May your spirit lead and guide us. Father, I pray uh, that everyone here will have heard from you, from your word, uh, a special message that would just encourage uh, and, and even challenge, if that may be where we're at. Uh, Lord, we know that you have a word for us this morning, so we, may, we be attentive uh, and expectant this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, for your many blessings and for your faithfulness unto us, even when we are faithless. And so, Father, just uh, be blessed as we uh, worship you and as we spend time in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Nancy, can you hear me over there? 
Okay, good. All right. In the uh, opening verse here, it tells us that Jesus crossed back over uh, the Sea of Galilee and he entered into his own city. Uh, We know that that city is the city of Capernaum. Uh, Here he is entering back into his city. Verse 2 tells us that they brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, uh, as we've covered before uh, in regards to Matthew as he writes, he's not one who's very involved in a lot of the details. And so we have to look oftentimes to the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Mark and Luke, and kind of fill in some gaps. And so we we don't know who the they uh, are. And so uh, Matthew them, but the other Gospel accounts inform us that it was four men that brought this paralytic to the Lord. Also not mentioned in Matthew's account is the means by which these four men brought their friend to Jesus. Both Mark's and Luke's account tells us that a large crowd had gathered around Jesus while he was staying at a house. Uh, Most people presume it was maybe Peter's house that he was staying at. And that the four men could not find a way to get the paralytic to Jesus. The house was packed. There was no way to get, get him in. And so being determined to get their friend to Jesus, they ended up taking the paralytic to the rooftop and removing some of the tiling, breaking through, and lowering their friend down before Jesus. Mark 2.4 and Luke 5.19 tell us uh, those descriptions. And so understanding the great lengths that these men went through to bring the paralytic to Jesus makes us understand a little bit more about the faith that Jesus perceived in these men. And as we consider just our own lives, I think there's a lesson here for us to learn. Okay? And, and this is what it is. That you and I, we both need friends like this, and we need to be friends like this. Okay? We need people in our life that are going to ensure that we go to the Lord. Okay? And, uh, and people that won't allow hindrances or barriers, uh, obstacles to keep us from going to the Lord. Okay? Likewise, we need to be like this for other people. Okay? We need to be interceding, be a good friend. And, and we should have a heart that says, I'm going to bring my friends to Jesus no matter what. Okay? I'm, I'm not going to allow hindrances or obstacles to get in the way of me reaching out and bringing our friends to the Lord. Now, salvation is a work of the Spirit. We can't force the Spirit's work in someone's life. But we can be faithful to, to pray for them and faithful to continue to minister them and to bring them to Jesus through sharing God's Word with them and, and sharing God's love with them. And so, you know, I, I'm not trying to say that we can force people to get saved, but we ought to have that determination of our friends and and loved ones, that we say, you know what, I'm not going to allow a crowded house to keep me from there. We're going to go up on the roof. We're going to tear it apart. We're going to lower them down. That kind of determination to see friends and loved ones come to the Lord. When Jesus saw the faith of the four men, he declared to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now I find this interesting. Jesus doesn't say anything at all about this man's physical condition. 
but goes straight to his spiritual condition. Jesus, later on in in our portion this morning, he's going to uh, parallel how his ministry is like that of a physician. And I see here that he's operating like a physician. Okay, when you and I we go to the hospital, okay, or we go to you know a clinic. One of the first things that the nurses will do or the the doctors or whoever is there is that they will ask about what's bothering you, what your symptoms are, what ails you, and they'll also take your vitals. Okay, they'll maybe have you weigh, they'll take your blood pressure, take your temperature, and different things like that. Then they ask you to have a seat, sometimes for a really long time. But um, what they're doing, okay, the purpose behind doing this is is triage. Okay, they are they are making an assessment. Hey, triage is, is when doctors or nurses, they'll assess the severity of your illnesses or your, your wounds. And then based upon the severity, they'll treat okay, uh, the most severe thing first. Okay? So if you have you know, your, your arm and you've got you know, your fingers, you know, I don't really, never mind, I won't go gross. But you know, you got something really bad going on, but you also have a fever. They're not going to be like, wait here, let me get you some aspirin for your, your, your headache. They're going to you know, take care of the more severe uh, wounds. And, and we see here, Jesus here is taking triage. Okay? And he's found that this man's greatest need was not to be able to walk again. This man's greatest need was that his sins would be forgiven. And, and this is all of mankind's greatest need. For what good does physical health do us during this lifetime, which is like a blink of an eye compared to eternity? What good does it do us if we are heading to eternity without our sins having been dealt with? Better to enter into heaven maimed than to enter into hell whole. And so we see here our greatest need is for our sins to be paid for. And we need to thank God that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay a debt that we could not pay. And Jesus paid the price for our sins. And He offers to us the answer to our greatest need. The forgiveness of sins. And I, as I look at this, oftentimes, like I said, I, I like to put myself into this, the, the scene. And I wonder what the four men thought after going through such great lengths to drop and lower their friend down to Jesus. I wonder what they thought when Jesus said, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. You know, my, in my mind, I, I kind of think... Uh, I read into it maybe, uh, some might say, but I doubt that's what they were expecting or hoping to hear from Jesus. Okay? I wonder if even, maybe even a little disappointed in, in Jesus' words. You know, they could have been like, thanks Jesus for forgiving his sins, um, but you think you could do something about you know, being able to walk? You know, that, that would be kind of great too. Um, I, that's how I imagine it. If, and if their minds were like that, I really couldn't blame them. Because I see this happen all the time. Okay? Even within the church, I, I think we, we see it happen. I think we often overlook people's need for a Savior and try and place more emphasis upon apparent physical needs. Okay? There was a, a, a very popular movement back in the day. It was a social gospel. And we're basically there, you know, the church was used to fight social injustices, and, and that's good, and those things are great, but they can't re- take the place of proclaiming Jesus Christ and His gospel message. 
Okay? You know, we can get involved in a lot of things that are good, but we can miss out on what's most important. Okay? And I know I, I have to constantly remind myself of this. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in, in fighting against poverty or, or equality or hunger or health that we can forget about the most important thing. Giving to the poor, feeding the hungry, or providing care for the ill are great and noble causes. But we must not forget about their greatest need. A Savior that can take care of their sin problem. You know, I'm very blessed that uh, we're doing the shoebox uh, gifts and we're partnering together with Samaritan's Samaritan's Purse. Because I know uh, people that have worked and ministered with Samaritan's Purse. I know people that are involved with that ministry, uh, uh, sending out shoeboxes. And we're there. I mean, the Lord's plan and how He works this, it was already determined, you know, months ago that gifts would be going to the Philippines and now all of a sudden there's a, a great need obviously in the Philippines. Uh, but it's a blessing because I know that they, they put tracks in each of those boxes. You know, they, they're sending out uh, gospel information in all the, each one of those boxes. I know that they're praying over each of those gifts and they're praying for the kids that are going to be receiving this thing. They have not forgotten the most important thing. Yes, we can provide gifts and, and things that are a blessing to people and, but we can't neglect and forget about the greatest, their greatest need. And so I'm blessed to be able to partner together with a ministry like Samaritan's Purse. You know, we did, uh, when the tsunami came back in 2011, uh, there was a lot of different humanitarian type groups that, you know, popped up, were doing great work, uh, but they were not Christian. And, you know, it was great to see that there was some Christian relief ministries that are doing things. And I would often encourage people, hey, you know, give to the Red Cross. I'm not trying to say the Red Cross is bad, but, you know, if we can give to a ministry that's also going to take care of the spiritual need as well, I think that's just a greater opportunity. And so, even as we consider the Philippines, things that are going on there with all of the destruction that's going on, and, and there's going to be humanitarian groups that are doing work there, and I want to encourage you guys to support them. But I would also encourage you to find ones that are going to uh, make sure they don't neglect their greatest need. That spiritual need. And so I encourage you guys uh, to get involved with that. Okay? In seeking to do good, we must remember to keep a good balance and never forget about people's greatest need, a Savior. Okay? We see here in verse 3 that there were some scribes amongst the crowd of people. Luke's account tells us that there were also Pharisees there as well. These religious elites, they spoke within themselves. This man blasphemes. Okay? To, to blaspheme means to insult or show contempt or lack of reverence for God. It also can mean to claim the attributes of deity. And so, why did they think that this was blasphemy? Again, the other gospel accounts tell us that the thought process behind the scribes and Pharisees was, you know, this man blasphemes because who can forgive sins but God alone? And their thought process is correct. Okay? Their thought process is correct. There's none that could forgive sins, forgive sins but God alone. God alone has that power to forgive us of our sins. Where they erred is that they didn't recognize Jesus as being God. Okay? Jesus was and is and always will be God. He never stopped being God when he came to earth. And because the scribes did not believe that Jesus was of God, they thought within themselves, 
that he was blaspheming by taking on the attributes of God to be able to forgive sins. That's only a work of God. And so they thought within themselves, he's blaspheming. I find it interesting. Jesus knew their thoughts, verse 4 tells us. Okay? And this is something worth noting as well, I think. Jesus, because he was God, he was able to know their thoughts. Do you realize that God knows your thoughts as well? Sometimes that can be scary. Because although we can make sure that we don't do things, oftentimes there's battles going on in the mind. Okay? And God knows those battles that are going on within our minds. Okay? But I also think that sometimes we can fool ourselves and think that we're getting away with certain things, that we're able to hide things from God. Okay? Uh, and, and that's really just foolishness to think that you can do that. God knows all. Uh, some people live a life contrary to God and think that they can get away with it. Even people in the church sometimes think they can pull one over on the Lord. And you know what? I, I think that there's people that do that, and you may be able to fool me, and you may be able to fool a lot of other people, but the most important person, the one that really matters, you're not going to be fooling him. So I want to encourage you guys to be able to just be real with the Lord. He knows where you're at. He knows your thoughts. He knows your struggles. He knows the, the temptations that you're going with. We don't have to put up a front with the Lord. We can just be real with Him and say, God, this is, you know my struggles. This is where I'm having difficulties. And, and ask Him to help. He's not going to be surprised. Oh, I didn't know you were struggling in that area. Okay? God knows. He knows our thoughts. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Jesus took this opportunity to demonstrate to the scribes and Pharisees his godly attributes in three ways in this portion here. Okay? First, he showed them by being able to know their thoughts, the thoughts of their hearts. Okay? Only God knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts and our mind. Okay? And so by knowing their thoughts, he showed one way that he was God. A second way is he showed them by to bring spiritual healing, the forgiveness of sins. And then thirdly, he showed them by being able to bring physical healing as well to this paralytic. Verse 7 says, The paralytic arose and departed to his house. And this became tangible evidence for the scribes and Pharisees. They witnessed Jesus perform a miraculous healing right before their eyes. But as you all know, and we will see, it wasn't enough evidence or proof for them. I think sometimes we can be, maybe encounter people like that. You know, if God would just do this, then, you know, I'll believe Him, or if God will show up and do something, and then God does something, and it's like, no, I still don't believe. <laughs> These Pharisees, you know, they're, they're questioning Him, you know, he, he can't be doing that, He's not God, and, and then He does things to prove that He is God. Thoughts, He's able to bring spiritual healing, He's able to bring physical healing. It doesn't impact them, it doesn't change them. Verse 8 says that the multitudes marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. 
although the scribes and Pharisees were not impacted, the rest of the crowd marveled and glorified God. And I think this should always be the result of a miracle. When a miracle happens, the result should always be that God is glorified. There are some so-called healers, uh, I I don't want to call them healers, but so-called healers that make claims to do the miraculous and then they receive all the glory. Okay? That's a, that's a no-no. That's a telltale sign that that's not a genuine work of the Lord. Okay? When people start taking glory and credit for themselves, you have to be careful of anybody that tries to do that. Okay? The people, they marveled that such power had been given to men. And here, I think, is something of interest as well. And previously, we noted that how Jesus was and is and always will be God. But here, I want to draw your attention to the fact that not only was Jesus God, He was also human. This is what we call the doctrine of the Incarnation. That Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man. How can that be, you may ask? My answer would be, I don't really know exactly how that works. Okay? I can be honest with you. I don't have to put up a front and try and explain that to you. It would take a much longer time than what we have this morning, that's for sure. But Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Some things just aren't that easy to explain, and we have to take them by faith. Okay, the Incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas. Okay? The, that God came to earth and took the form of a babe, was born of a virgin, and lived among us. He was God, and yet He was man at the same time. It's hard to maybe understand, but it's one of those things that I know the Bible teaches. Okay? And so I'm going to believe it. And if I can't fully explain it, I'm still okay with that. And I hope that you guys would be too. It is a matter of faith. But we do know that scriptures clearly teach us. 100% God and at the same time, 100% man. Continuing our study, let's look at the next portion of scripture, verses 9 through 13. I'll read them aloud. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. And now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus departed. He was traveling about when he came across a tax collector named Matthew. Okay? This is the very same Matthew that penned the gospel account that we are reading and have been studying uh, together. Matthew, uh, the gospel writer, is and was a tax collector before the Lord called him into ministry. Previously, we noted how four men went to great lengths to bring their friend to Jesus. But here we see that Jesus came to Matthew and met him where he was at. I like that. Jesus sometimes just comes to you and meets you where you're at. Each of us, 
that are born-again Christians and believers, we have a testimony. And for some of you, your testimony involves people sharing with you, being like those four men, just bringing you to the Lord, doing whatever they can to encourage you and share the love of Christ with you. But yet others of you have a testimony where Jesus, He just came to you and called you out from where you were. And I'm okay with that. I think that's great. God can meet us where we're at. Matthew was a tax collector, was at a tax office when the Lord came to him. As a tax collector, Matthew was very much looked down upon by his fellow Jews. They were seen as traitors for selling themselves to the Romans to work for the government. Warren Wearsby, a, a favorite commentator of mine, he wrote about tax collectors and he said that each tax collector purchased from Rome the right to gather taxes and the more he gathered, the more he could keep. And so it was a very corrupt system. And people would gather more than what was required and then anything they got to keep that was extra, just they got to line their own pockets with. And so it was very corrupt. They were considered thieves. And because they had... A- Contact with Gentiles, they were seen as unclean. And oftentimes they would be lumped together with the worst of society. Tax collectors, they're horrible uh, sinners. That is often the, the mindset or mentality. And it's interesting to me that Jesus would hand select a tax collector to be one of his disciples. I think Matthew serves as an example of the great grace of God. And how the Lord can use anyone. Even the worst of the society, God can use and touch that man's life to make him become a disciple of Christ. One who would actually pen the very first book of our New Testament that we have here. A tax collector. And God used him. I think it serves for great hope for for us, you know, I, I don't know a, a lot of your different testimonies and your backgrounds, but I know a, a number of people who have been in that category, that you could lump them in with some of the worst of society, and yet God has reached out and touched their lives and done incredible things through them. And that's just a measure of the amount of grace that God has for towards us. We see here that Jesus uh, told Matthew to follow me. He was very straightforward. Okay? He didn't sit down with Matthew and, and explain to him all the pros and cons of following the Lord or, or try and sell Matthew on something. He simply said, follow me. And, and Matthew responded to the call. Okay? Luke tells us that after being called by Jesus that Matthew left all, he rose up and followed him. What great step of faith for Matthew to take. He left his livelihood behind him. Okay? All his comforts and, and perks of being the tax collector and being able to line his own pockets, he left that all behind and followed the Lord. After responding to the Lord's calling in his life, Matthew then decided to throw a feast for Jesus and his other disciples. Obviously, Matthew invited a number of his friends uh, to come and join in this meal. And verse 10 actually tells us that many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him, referring to Jesus and his disciples. And I'd like to point out something here in regards to the company that we keep. Jesus... 
sat with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus wasn't afraid to be in the of sinners. In fact, it would be seem, based upon the gospel accounts of his life, that he spent a lot of time with some of the least respected people within the community. Jesus was able to meet with sinners and yet keep himself from sin. Okay? And that's a very important point to make, I believe. Okay? He was able to have a positive influence upon their lives. John Corson, another pastor, one of the pastors in Oregon, great commentator, he stated this, Although Jesus came to people as they were, he left them different than when he found them. And I think this is a good example for us to follow. Sometimes I think we in the church, we begin to create environments in our lives where if a sinner were to come in or we were to have you know, interaction with them, they would be very uncomfortable. They don't, would not want to have anything to do with you and they would probably get out of your presence as fast as they can. And I don't think that's the best type of environment that we ought to create. We need to be willing to meet with people and have relationships with people that are outside of the church. We should make them feel welcome and loved. The purpose of such relationships should always be to impart Christ to them in some form or fashion. However, there's a balance to it. And I do want to give this word of caution. Sometimes the opposite can happen. Sometimes, instead of us having a positive influence over the company that we keep, the company has a negative influence over us. And this is something that we must exercise discernment over and know when we need to cut ties. And we, when we need to pull chocks, right? Like this? Is that, that's the, you know, when we gotta, we're out of here, right? We can have that interaction. I would encourage you to have that interaction. Have those friendships, those relationships that you might share the love of Christ with them and reach out to people. But make sure that as you're hanging out with them and having those relationships that they're not influencing you. It's a very delicate balance. One that Jesus was able to, to hold. He hung out with sinners all the time, tax collectors, he, and, and yet he had a positive influence on their lives. And I would encourage you guys to do the same. You know, I think we, we need to open up our, our doors a little bit more, okay? And be willing to, to have people in our lives that maybe not have the same beliefs as us, but we want to love on them and share the, the love of Christ with them, to reach out to them. So I would encourage you guys to use discernment, to pray, but to look for opportunities to have those types of relationships. The Pharisees, they were once again around, and when they saw Jesus eat tax collectors and sinners, they came to Jesus' disciples with a question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay. The fact that Jesus was willing to spend time with tax collectors and sinners really bothered the Pharisees. Okay? That was like, oh my goodness, you're, you're hanging out with those people? Uh, they are just, oh. They had this very religious elite type of mentality. They weren't having anything to do with those type of people. And it's interesting, Jesus heard their question and he responded for himself by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician 
but those who are sick. The meaning behind Jesus' response is, is easy to understand. He eats and spends time with tax collectors and sinners because they are the ones that are in the greatest need. Sick people need a doctor and sinners need a savior. Matthew then goes on and inserts an Old Testament quote from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And when he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The, uh, the actual verse in Hosea reads, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. This quote from Hosea is, is not mentioned in either of the Gospels of Mark or Luke. But that shouldn't surprise us, though, because you'll recall, recall that Matthew's main audience was the Jews, and his style of writing was many allusions and quotes to the Old Testament accounts and verses. And so, what's the meaning behind this verse? Again, I, I think it's pretty easy to understand. Jesus wanted the Pharisees to learn what this verse means. What do we know about the Pharisees? They were very zealous. They were very zealous for the Lord and the things of the Lord. They prided themselves on the acts of service and were sometimes even boastful about their service to the Lord. We know that they prided themselves on the law of the Lord. And in their opinion, keeping the law. They would offer tithes of, excuse me, tithes of their mint, rue, and all manner of herbs. And so not just the money that they're, but everything they had. We're going to tithe it all. And, and they had just this, we are so great uh, type of mentality, this holier uh, than now type of mentality. And, and Jesus is basically saying that these many gifts from tithing and trying to keep the letter of the law is not as important as understanding the heart of the law. God desired mercy and not sacrifice. The the Greek word for mercy is defined as kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. God wants that type of heart more than He wants a bunch of sacrifices of grain and burnt offerings of animals. You may recall Samuel's interaction with Saul. Over the issue as well. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Lord had instructed Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites and their possessions. And yet Saul did not listen. And he saved the best of the flocks and spared King Agag's life. When approached by Samuel asking him why he did not listen to the Lord and completely destroy everything... Saul said he thought it would be, my paraphrase, and it'd be good to, to bring back the best of the flock and we'll make a sacrifice, an offering to God. And that's when Samuel declared in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In like manner, Jesus quotes this verse to show them that they've missed out on the heart of the law and they focus too much upon the letter of the law. They've missed it completely. And so Jesus continues after his quote and he declared that he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
to repentance. Let me ask you this question. Who are the righteous? Romans chapter 3 verse 10 tells us that there's none righteous. No, not one. And later on in Romans chapter 3, it tells us who the sinners are. Okay? When we look at this, we say, who are the righteous and who are the sinners? A little later, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And so from Romans 3, we see that when Jesus says that He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, He's, he's saying, I've come for everyone. Because no one here is righteous, and all of you are sinners. And that's still true today. Jesus is, is, what He's saying here is that He's come for us all. That's why John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He came to call us all. He came to call the sinners. That's all of us. Okay? But the Pharisees, they had their own form of righteousness. It was a self-righteousness in their works. And although Jesus knew that there were none that were righteous and that we were all sinners, I believe that the Pharisees probably felt like they were off the hook when it came to Jesus because He did not come to call the righteous and the Pharisees would assume themselves to be the righteous but sinners to repentance. So we see they make a grave error in their own assessment of themselves. Let's look here at these final verses of our portion this morning, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wine the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This time the disciples of John get in on the questioning of practice performed, uh, by Je- practices performed by Jesus and His disciples. But a closer look at the other gospel accounts would seem to indicate that the scribes and Pharisees were behind this as well. Okay? Matthew only mentions John's disciples though. But most commentators, if you read Mark and if you read uh, Luke's account, they mention the Pharisees being involved as well. And most commentators agree that although John's disciples were the ones asking the question, that it was probably the Pharisees and scribes that were still stirring the pot and asking questions. As we see, they already came to Jesus' disciples and tried to ask them a question. Jesus jumped in and answered for His disciples. Then they... The idea is that they were also asking John's disciples, hey, what's going on with this guy? And directed them to ask the question as well. And so John's disciples asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus is going to respond to this question with three different parables. Each of which, I believe, are related. And we have to remember that a parable is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth. And so, when a parable is explained, the earthly side of it, most people get it. I understand what he's saying. But to be able to understand the spiritual implication can be a little bit more difficult. 
Let's look at this first parable that Jesus speaks. Jesus answered their question with a question of his own. He asked, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus draws upon an earthly example in the form of a wedding to explain himself. Jewish Jewish weddings were times of rejoicing and celebration. A feast would take place and would usually last about seven days long. During this time, the friends of the bridegroom would stay with him the whole entire time. Tradition shows that even the Pharisees and other Jews would refrain from fasting during these seven-day wedding feasts as it was a time of joy and feasting. Jesus likens himself to the bridegroom and his disciples to the friends of the bridegroom. And so the answer to Jesus' question about the friends of the bridegroom mourning while the bridegroom is with them at the wedding feast is an answer that all would understand. The answer is no, right? None of them are going to do that. It's a time of feasting and rejoicing and celebrating. No one's going to be mourning during that time. It's a no-brainer. The earthly side of it is, at least. Jesus then follows his question up with a statement. He said, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus already likened himself to the bridegroom. And so when he says the bridegroom will be taken away from them, he's speaking of a future time when he will be taken away from his disciples. I believe he's referencing his future death upon the cross and his ascension into heaven. Jesus said, then my disciples will fast. And we do see that after Jesus ascended into heaven, that the church grew, and we read of different occasions through the book of Acts where Jesus' disciples did, in fact, fast. The next parable Jesus speaks involves a piece of unshrunk cloth okay, on an old garment. Jesus said, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Again, Jesus, he refers to something that all would be able to understand and relate to. If you try and patch up a hole in an old garment and you use new unshrunk cloth as a patch, you're going to end up ruining the patch job and making the damage to the old garment even worse. Okay? Um, the, the basic... Excuse me. Because when you would wash the patched up garment, the new unshrunk cloth would then shrink and then pull away at the fabric, making the hole even bigger. And so the basic message here that is that you can't mix the new with the old. You can't put the new onto the old. Okay, that's not going to work. That's the basic, I believe, message. In context to what Jesus has just said, though, I believe that Jesus is referring to a new thing that is going to take place when he leaves his disciples. He just talked about how he's going to leave them. And so he's going to be talking about something that's going to happen when he leaves. And we know that before he departs, Jesus will institute a new covenant with his disciples. A covenant founded in his blood, which would be shed for the forgiveness of sins. A new covenant of grace. No longer would they be under the old covenant of the law. And so Jesus, I believe, is referring here to the new covenant that will be established after his resurrection and ascension. Once he is gone and departed, something new is going to become into place. And you won't be able to mix it with the old. The parable teaches excuse me, that the new covenant is not meant to be a patch job 
for the Old Covenant. Okay? Also, that the New Covenant and the Old Covenant should not be mixed together. It would only make things worse. Okay? And so it's not as if Jesus is coming and He's saying, yeah, the, the law and everything is great. I'm just going to add a little bit to it and it's going to be good to go. It's something completely new. Okay? He came and He fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. And so there comes something new from it. The third parable is very similar to the second one, but involves new wine and old wineskins. Again, this parable's basic message is that old and the new shouldn't be mixed. Jesus said, Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This parable is something most would quickly relate to the earthly truth being described. Okay? Everyone would know that once a wineskin is used, especially for fermenting wine, it becomes stretched out. Okay? It can become brittle as well if left out. Okay? And then what would happen is there's also leftover residue of yeast from the fermented wine. And so if you put new wine into it, Okay? It's going to make the wine ferment much quicker than what it's supposed to. It'll expand much more rapidly. And if the wine skin is brittle and old, it will burst. Okay? And you will lose your wine, and you'll destroy your wine skin. And so the earthly side of it, yeah, got it, following along. Okay? But remember that parables are earthly stories that share heavenly truths. Okay? So the earthly story is readily understood. What is the heavenly or spiritual truth? Jesus is speaking of. Again, I believe the context that it's set in is Jesus spoke of a time when he'd no longer be with his disciples. At this time, God will begin a new work through his church and through the power of the Holy Spirit. This new work will not mix with the old. Okay? If you try to take the new work under grace and try and fit it in to the old way of following the law, it's not going to work. Okay? Jesus' final words on the matter are to put new wine into new wineskins. Okay? Jesus' new work of grace needs to be placed in new vessels. You know, when we come to Christ, the scriptures say that we are a new creation. Okay? And we can be like that new wineskin and receive that new covenant of grace in our lives. No longer are we held accountable to the, the law, the Old Testament covenant of fulfilling the law. We are under grace as new creations in Christ. The only way to be able to receive this new work is through being born again. As the scriptures talk about becoming uh, new life. And so we see here, Jesus takes this opportunity when asked about fasting. Kind of crazy. I'm like, I was blown away. I was like, they asked about fasting and he was able to turn that and talk about all this stuff. To be able to take out the idea of fasting and explain to the Pharisees and those around him about a new work that's going to be going on. A new covenant that'd be established through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's pretty cool how he, he can take that question about fasting and be able to explain the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection and the new work that God's going to do as Jesus fulfills the old covenant and begins a new one. It's kind of cool. I wish I could do that. I know certain people that can just engage in a conversation and be able to churn it and twist it right into spiritual things. I'm not that gifted. But Jesus was. It was really good. 
This morning we looked at lots of just little things, made running commentary. I hope that there was something there that ministered to you, something that you're able to put in your pocket and walk away with and say, Lord, maybe there's something that you'd have for me to, to meditate upon, to pray over, to think about, you know, loved ones we have in our life that we want to see come to the Lord, not allowing obstacles or hindrances to, to get in the way from that. Okay? Making sure we have relationships with people that are, you know, we, we don't live inside a, a, a bubble, you know, this pure, you know, sterile bubble that doesn't have any sinners in it at all. Hey, don't be like that. Okay? Be careful. Be careful. But, but don't be like that. I, I want to encourage you to have those relationships that you might reach out to them with the love of Christ and impact their lives. And then here, just looking at Jesus, He's created this new covenant. And uh, we want to be like those new wineskins. Okay? We don't want to be an old wineskin. We don't want to be brittle, dry, crusty. Okay? Don't be like that. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning. And uh, just... Your word, Lord, as we can just spend time in it and hear your heart and know your will for us. Father, I pray that you would uh, allow us to continue to just learn as we depart and to think about uh, the portion of Scripture that we we covered this morning. Lord, the truths that we found in it. Uh, And Father, I just pray that you'd do a great work in our lives as individuals and and corporately as a church. Lord, that... uh, We'd be uh, about bringing people to you and and making an effort uh, to not allow things to get in the way uh, of meeting people's greatest need. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would just use us in that capacity, Lord, uh, to be a part, to be a a tool in your hand uh, to bring people to Christ. And so, Father, uh, empower us by your Spirit, lead and guide us. I thank you again for just this church family. What a blessing they are. I thank you and pray this in Jesus' name.